Hey, it's Annie. I'm a policy researcher at Civic Ventures, and I help produce this podcast. A few days ago, I called up Nancy Bristow, the chair of the Department of History at the University of Puget Sound. She's the author of the book, American Pandemic, The Lost Worlds of the 1918 Influenza Epidemic. And I talked to her about how our response to this pandemic compares to society's response almost exactly 100 years ago. I hope you enjoy. Here's Nancy. My name is Nancy Bristow. I'm a professor of history at the University of Puget Sound, and I've written a book on the flu pandemic of 1918. Do you consider yourself a historian of pandemics? I don't. I consider myself a a social historian with certain interest in uh, American catastrophe. Um, But most recently, my work has shifted to explorations of racial violence in the United States. What led you to the catastrophe interest? Well, actually, I didn't even realize that's what I was doing. But my first book looked at the First World War and and relationships between soldiers and civilians. But I was fascinated by that war. And I really stumbled into my project on the flu pandemic. It was a family story that I'd never heard. uh, And when I heard it, I knew I had to pursue it. I'm really excited to talk to you. I think our listeners and, you know, the podcast team, too, we're, we're all thinking about the idea of normalcy and what normal you know, in the future will look like in terms of the economy and and just society in general. And I know that's something you've thought a lot about too. But I'd love to start with just drawing the the general similarities and differences between this crisis and the 1918 pandemic. Well, the thing that's most important to note is that we're dealing with a different virus. So to the extent we can draw comparisons, they're meaningful. But what we don't know is how this virus will behave. On some level, that actually makes it similar to 1918. I think as a historian, I've grown enormously in my understanding of 1918 from recognizing how uncertain we all feel. We don't know how long this will last. We don't know whether it will come in another wave. We don't know ultimately what the morbidity and mortality rates are going to turn out to be. And that's exactly how people felt in 1918. So though it's a different virus, the very uncertainty that is at the heart, I think, of both incidents make them very similar in terms of what it means to be trying to live through it. Another really important difference is that in 1918, it was a world at war. Uh, literally, we were in the midst of the First World War, though we have war-torn areas in the world right now who are suffering through as pieces uh, of the world at war. Uh, we're not in the midst of a world war. And that means that the movement sure. of troops that were, were such an important feature of the spread in 1918 is something that we're dodging uh, today. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is we fly on airplanes now uh, and we are really very much a global society. And so if we're not a world at war, we are nevertheless a world that is is so interconnected today that in some ways the same things are happening, the rapid spread worldwide. The other thing that's really different, of course, is the spread of information. Um, They relied on newspapers largely in 1918. Now, most locales did have a daily newspaper or at least a weekly newspaper in the United States. But today we're dealing with, right, instantaneous information and also uh, a different relationship to the press. Mm -hmm. Uh, If in 1918 people tended to believe what they were told, today we have such a contest going on about what's true and what is not true with different people believing different media sources. So there's not the same kind of agreed upon uh, central narrative taking place. Along those lines, is trust in the government lower now than it was then? Exponentially lower. Hmm. Uh, Since the 1960s, I think both the war in Vietnam and then Watergate in the 1970s had a devastating impact on the way Americans think about their leadership. 
and as a result, I think the trust is so much lower. Whereas in 1918, you know, people may be frustrated with their government, but they believed that their leaders had their best interests in mind, and they believed what their leaders told them, uh, for better or for worse. In terms of morbidity, and I don't know how much the global population has changed, but it seems like percentages of people killed wouldn't really give you the picture. But in terms of like sheer number of people who were killed, is it similar at all to what the outlooks are for for COVID? It's so hard because I I guess I'm not certain on what the outlook for COVID is. There's so many yeah, varying models. Yeah. yeah. But what we can say is that we believe that as much as a third of the world's population may have been infected in 1918, 1919. Wow. In the United States, the figure was more like 28%, roughly a quarter of Americans were sickened. I mean, that's a stunning figure. That's huge. But, you know, like a couple weeks ago, they were saying that 70% of Americans would get coronavirus eventually. Right. That's why the mortality rate ends up being so right. significant to us. So did we have a similar response in 1918 and as far as shutting down the economy and waiting for it to pass? Absolutely. You have that and you have communities that don't do that. In 1918, they don't have the same research. So they were trying all kinds of things and different communities did it, did it at different rates and with different comprehensiveness. But yeah, they were doing everything from learning not to spit in public or to cover their coughs uh, and to avoid overcrowding the first step. Then they would move to closures like we're suffering now with closing public spaces and prohibiting public meetings. In some communities, there would be quarantine, but not all. In some places, public masking was tried, obviously a new feature of our community right now. And despite their complete ineffectiveness, uh, many communities actually employed vaccines as well. And did it cause a recession? It appears that that's not the case. What it appears is that in the aftermath, there certainly is a recession in the United States. But is that due to the end of the war or is that due to the pandemic? It's hard to know. Right. What we do know from recently released research done by folks at MIT, what we're discovering is that those communities that practice social distancing and closures early, comprehensively and for the duration, actually had a, a faster and more fulsome economic recovery. So it turns out, as they say, that not only is social distancing good for our health, it's also going to be good for the economy. Why? Well, it appears that if you can shut things down, you will lessen, you will flatten the curve, which mm -hmm. means you'll be better able to take care of those who do get sick and you'll have a lower mortality rate. Uh, so that in the aftermath, when you go to rebuild, when you go to reopen, uh, the less disruption you've had to your community including to those who are going to be workers and managers and organizers and do the work of the community, the less disruption you've had through death, uh, the better situated in a sense you are to get back to work and, and to do the work of recovering. So what kind of help was there to people during the shutdown of the economy in 1918? You mean in terms of economic help? Yeah. There wasn't any. So what did people do? <laughs> There were private agencies and there were some local agencies that did help uh, those people who were in the worst circumstances. But the reality is there was no federal safety net yet, right? Things like social security and unemployment come to us through the New Deal in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So we're in an era where very much people are still expected to take care of themselves regardless of their circumstances. And that means that people were suffering homelessness um, at worst, but they might also simply be very hungry. They might not have coal 
um, to heat their homes. So a great deal of really difficult circumstances for the most vulnerable. Uh, there were private agencies and public agencies that sometimes intervened uh, or sometimes offered assistance. But unfortunately, two things would operate. One was a kind of discrimination between those who were seen as worthy versus the, quote, unworthy poor. And then secondly, often aid came with a kind of uh, social or cultural policing. Uh, I read a case in Minneapolis where a family applied for aid and ended up on the books um, being sort of surveilled for several years afterwards and actually lost one of their children for a long time wow. uh, before they could get their commute, they could get their household to appear the way that the aid providers wanted it to be. Well, the rich get carrots and the poor get sticks. Pretty much. So in terms of society level lessons, big question, what lessons do you think we learned as a people from that experience? Lessons we did learn or lessons that we should have learned? Oh, definitely both. So the lessons we should learn are very clear. First, social distancing works. We had the great advantage that we can use the statistics from 1918, 1919 to know that the kinds of policies that are in place right now make sense and will save lives. Mm -hmm. uh, second, I think it's very clear by the way that people responded to the demands on them in 1918, 1919, that the people want good information. They need to trust the government. And the way to do that is to have straightforward, correct information given to them. Uh, the sort of upbeat, uh, hopeful narratives that turn out to be untrue do nothing but undercut people's trust. So people need to be told the truth so that they can know how they should act. And they have to understand that even doing everything we can, the pandemic will have negative impacts that people will sicken and die, unfortunately. A third lesson, and this is the one that, that really is close to my heart, is we need to recognize the unequal, the inequitable landing of this on different people in different communities, uh, both nationally and, and globally, right? It matters who you are, as you said, the rich get carrots and the poor get sticks. In the context of a pandemic, the rich get ventilators and the poor don't. We need to be thinking ahead and we should have managed uh, long before this to be ready to handle the needs of our most vulnerable. After 1918, they did not remake the social and economic and cultural and racial hierarchies. Uh, we have not done so subsequently either. And so we continue to have many of the same populations without access to good health care. That's unconscionable in 2020. And then finally, emergency preparedness. Uh, we didn't learn it then. We didn't learn it several other times. We didn't take it seriously after Katrina or a series of other uh, climate change disasters, we've got to start taking seriously that emergencies happen and that we need to be ready at the federal and state and local level to respond to them. I mean, your use of the word unconscionable is just, it's spot on. Like, it just seems insane that, you know, a hundred years have passed and we do have more social safety nets, but, you know, essentially we're in the same situation. We knew what would happen. I think Warren Buffett said, like, you only see who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out. But the tide, it went out. Like, we knew who was swimming naked, and we knew it would probably happen again. And it just seems unconscionable that we're not really in a much better situation. It's so true. And what really worries me is when you think of medical practitioners who are going to have to make some very difficult decisions in places like New York City and, and in places all over the country, I fear, who gets a ventilator? And if you go by the idea of who is most likely to survive and recover, you will, of necessity, 
reinforced the very inequities that led some people to have poor health than others going into the pandemic, right? What are they supposed to do? We've put them in a, in a position that's completely unfair. And yet if we operate by the traditional notion that physicians have to do in a context like this, triage, right? Who can I save? Who can't I save? If we do it that way, we are absolutely condemning those who are already vulnerable, right? Essentially to death. Right. There's no justice in that. There's no fairness in that. During the pandemic a century ago, was there were people talking about the safety net and were people noticing that the effects were so much worse for people who were, you know, on precarious economic footing? Like were people writing op-eds calling for help for them or was society just kind of like this is the way it is? Yeah, there's a huge range of responses. There are many people who had already been campaigning for change in the country. Remember, this is happening sort of in the tail end of the progressive era. So there had been reformers mobilized to make change in, this, in the country uh, for the preceding 20 plus years, and they had had some successes. And so those voices do continue. At the same time, alongside the reform, there is this persistent voice of critique of the poor a critique of those who were vulnerable as if it were their own fault. And again, this is a voice of American individualism that I fear continues right into 2020. And I think we continue to hear it right now. So even those who are working among the most vulnerable and were aware of the horror of what they were seeing, you know, visiting a, a poor family uh, in which everyone in the family is sick. There are people who have already passed away still in the household, perhaps even in the same sick bed with those who were still suffering that nurses or other social um, social workers would enter the homes and actually be critical of them because it was dirty in there, because they didn't seem to have the right clothes, because they weren't keeping clean, because they didn't have the right food, because they were keeping their windows open or they were keeping their windows closed. So again and again, even as people could see the circumstances of the very poor, there was such an assumption that the poor were poor of their own volition. Um, this idea that you could get on the ladder and climb it if you wanted to, something that I think we've seen for centuries is simply not true, even in the United States. You know, that reminds me of what we're seeing in Seattle right now, which is, you know, we have a huge homeless population and public restrooms are closed. And so we have this huge population who is struggling to find a place to wash their hands. But then if they get sick, then they're going to be the least least able to access quality care or even know where to go or like be able to jump through the hoops that you need to jump through to get a test. And it's just, it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy that's kind of born of how we view what people who are down on their luck deserve. It's exactly right. It's awful. Yeah, it's awful. It's crazy. And it is the conundrum at the heart of all of this, which is as long as we continue to disadvantage certain people and certain populations, we have to take that into account as we provide assistance in the context of something like the pandemic. People are poor for a reason, and it's most of the time absolutely and completely not because they choose to be poor, and yet their suffering will be imposed upon them and heaped upon them in the midst of this. I mean, the homelessness uh, issue is such an ongoing crisis for us, and this only heightens the visibility of how unjust the situation we're living in right now in 2020 is pandemic or no. So people are saying that there won't necessarily be a normal leftover to return to in terms of the economy. But I'm wondering, in terms of society, like how long did it take to return to something that felt normal in 1918? 
that's one of the really puzzling things for me is how quickly uh, Americans not only recovered from the pandemic, but absolutely put it out of their minds in the public sphere. Hmm. So I'm not going to suggest that people's lives were rebuilt immediately. And in fact, um, it's very clear that people who had been traumatized, who had had terrible losses or had themselves been really sick, didn't forget about the pandemic their entire lives. But in the public sphere, it just evaporated. Happening during the war, I think, was was a big part of that. But as the nation comes out of the pandemic, it's really interesting to watch how quickly the storyline, even in, in places like the New York Times, for instance, which had covered the pandemic very carefully with great detail, how quickly the storyline shifts to this upbeat, positive one about how we're on our way again. Uh, yeah. And now we've recovered and now we're going to be the greatest nation in the world. So that's a sense from tracking headlines? Absolutely. One of my favorite examples of this is, is yes, you can look at the headlines and very quickly they move from the data on how many people are sickening and dying to how many stores have opened today. Uh, look, the right. schools are back open and here's stories about what it's like to be back at school. Um, here's people celebrating out in the street. Do you think that reflected what people were feeling and talking about in their houses? Like how did it pop up in art at all after the after it was over? That's what's fascinating is it does turn up, but very rarely. Uh, we talk about the great World War I literature, right? There's so much powerful literature in the 1920s related to World War I. There's almost none on the flu pandemic. What is written is very, very good, um, but there's very little of it. So do you think that'll be what happens this time too? Are we going to forget about it? I don't know. I hope not. Um, as I say, people didn't forget. Um, I interviewed a woman uh, 85 years after the pandemic, and her mother had died when she was three months old. And she'd been kind of traded from family to family for a couple of years before settling in in a situation in which she could see her father regularly. And I interviewed her, as I say, 85 years later. And I asked her, you know, you don't remember your mother. You don't remember the pandemic. Did it really have any effect on your life? And she said, it, it changed my life completely. It had to. So people lived with this their whole lives. And we know that for those who suffer trauma, the best way towards a new life, not the old life, but a new life that's worth living, is to have your story heard. So for us to remember is absolutely, it would be the most humane thing we can do. Uh, for those of us who aren't affected, to be able to hear the stories of those who are will be essential. Mm -hmm. um, for those who have suffered through it, telling our stories will be essential. Um, I hope we can find the public space for that to happen rather than the traditional American notion of let's just look on the bright side because we're always getting better. For some people, life won't have gotten better because of this. And I hope we're ready to hear those stories. I hope we're also ready to make changes. It would honor the people who have to bear the individual burden to, as a society, say, OK, we're going to make sure less people bear individual burdens next time. I agree so completely. And I, I just hope that that's what will happen. We've been so mired in the United States, it seems, for decades uh, in, in terms of our politics, not being able to accomplish much. And yet this has to make clear for so many people some of the shortcomings of how we're running things here. Um, and as in, in particular issues around access to healthcare and access to the essentials of living a decent life, I don't see how we can watch what's happening now and not want to make changes. So that brings me really beautifully to my last question, which is what lessons would you have us as a society learn from this? And really more, what would you have us remember not to forget about it? I would have us remember that each of us will suffer in our own way and that we need to think carefully about why the suffering is so differentiated. 
I want us to remember that some people won't have had even a chance at getting through this unscathed. And I hope we can look at that really carefully. Never forget that we allowed some of the global citizenry, some of those who live in the United States, to have no fighting chance in the midst of this. And we set that up. And I hope that we can not only never forget that, but that we can also act on it. This shouldn't happen another time. That's perfectly put. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.